Hello and welcome back to How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. My name is Connor Matchett and I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Scotsman. In this limited podcast series, we are examining what might happen if Scotland becomes independent after a second independence referendum, and whether we can learn anything from other countries who have gone down similar paths. So far, we have looked at what might happen at Scotland's borders and how the country may vote. But if Scotland became independent, one of the pressing questions for many voters is what will happen to our money and our economy. The financial health of the nation is usually the highest priority of those who vote and is the centre of the fiercest political debate. It is also, arguably, what lost the SNP the first independence referendum in 2014. The question of what currency in independent Scotland would have and how the country would cope leaving behind a centuries-old economic union with the rest of the United Kingdom is a key question the SNP must answer before the next referendum. But we're not here to do that for them. What we can look at is how other countries approach the same central questions of what currency we want and how close a link we want between our new country and our old historic union. Jan Fidemuch, Professor of Economics at the University de Lille, provides the historical background to two of those countries who went through that process, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Basically, Czechoslovakia was uh, a country that uh, was created in 1918 on the, the, the ruins of Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and uh, the two parts had, to some extent, distinct histories. Uh, uh, what is now Czech Republic uh, used to be an independent kingdom for a long time. And now later, uh, for the last 300 years before independence, it was incorporated into Austria or the Austrian part of the empire, where Slovakia was uh, a part of uh, integral part of Hungary for essentially a thousand years. Uh, and so, you know, politically, they, they were quite distinct culturally as well. And uh, in 1918, there, there was this idea that uh, they could create a single state uh, that would kind of uh, be more stable than either of them uh, apart, because there was a risk that potentially uh, there would be some desire to incorporate them back into either Austria or Hungary or some kind of other entity. So there, there, there was this uh, communist period after the Second World War when uh, it essentially Czechoslovakia essentially became a satellite state of the Soviet Union, uh, and this ended uh, in 1989 uh, with a kind of a very peaceful uh, democratic revolution, if you can call it a uh, velvet revolution. Sometimes people call it. The, the country managed to restore democracy. Kind of uh, brought eventually the demise of the country because it turned out that the two countries were indeed quite diverse politically at that point, uh, to some extent culturally as well. And so when they had an election two years later in 1992, essentially 30 years ago today, uh, almost 30 years ago, they uh, elected uh, very different representations in the two parts, uh, which then negotiated for several weeks or even months uh, about how to shape the, the common entity, the, the common state uh, in the future. And uh, they couldn't agree on a scenario, on, on, on a, a design that would be acceptable to both sides. And in the end, they agreed to, to disagree. So essentially, this happened in uh, the summer and then uh, fall in uh, 1992. At some point, uh, when they essentially realized that they couldn't come to an agreement, uh, they kind of switched focus and instead of uh, trying to negotiate how to proceed uh, together, instead they just focused on how to split uh, the country uh, in the best possible way. 
The independence question in the then Czechoslovakia originated from the fact the union of the two nations was asymmetrically affected by the transition to a post-communist world and economy. Both countries suffered from high unemployment, increasing inflation and a lack of experience as they transitioned to a market economy. Amid rising nationalism and a struggling economy, the country of Czechoslovakia was peacefully dissolved in 1992 with the Czech Republic and Slovakia being created as separate nation-states in 1993. The central question of currency, however, was barely part of that conversation. Jarko Fidemuch, Jan's brother and professor of international economics at the Zeppelin University in Friedrichshafen, Germany, explains more. For me, it was really like surprising that these very important questions were completely ignored in the discussion. So there was basically not much discussion about what will be the arrangement of the monetary regimes of exchange rate uh, after uh, the, the separation, after independence, and uh, well, Slovakia actually started the developments with completely unprepared situation. There was no national bank, there was no consideration who will make the monetary policy, how the monetary policy will be conducted. It was completely interesting that nobody was really taking care about these questions. As is often the case, this lack of consideration hit both countries in different ways. I think uh, the Czech Republic uh, was a much better organized uh, going into this uh, whole process. Uh, Slovakia, my feeling always was that Slovakia actually never expected uh, independence to happen this quickly, although they were kind of pushing for that, uh, but they, they thought... Uh, it, if anything, it would be a much more protracted process. Uh, as when the two sides agreed to disagree and uh, started negotiating about uh, the future economic arrangements between them, uh, you know, they, they had a lot uh, of work to do, whereas the Czechs already had made some preparations. The two countries had agreed to continue using a common currency, shared by both nations. But this approach did not end well. One of the central problems was something known as capital flight, where individuals move money to a part of the currency union, in this case, the Czech Republic. This is done in order to protect their savings or seek a quick profit on the back of an assumption that the weaker part of the currency union will see the value of that currency drop. Jan and Jarko Fidemuch explain. So with respect to the common currency, there was an agreement uh, or a desire expressed by both sides uh, that uh, they should maintain strong and uninterrupted economic ties, essentially in every area, you know, as far as it was possible. And for the most part, the, this was successful. The, the customs union was maintained until it essentially became irrelevant because both countries uh, joined the EU in 2004. The Common currency was a different case. The official statement at the time was that this would be potentially temporary, but it would be kept uh, for, for months or years. And in the end, it collapsed after six weeks. And it collapsed essentially because uh, it turned out to be unsustainable uh, because people started transferring funds from Slovakia to the Czech Republic, largely because of expectation that the, this common currency would fail. 
and that the silver currency would depreciate after this. Uh, and so essentially, it was effectively speculative uh, monetary transfers or speculative uh, capital flight, which started uh, taking on quite massive proportions. We have seen something similar when there were speculations about Greece potentially leaving uh, the, the eurozone, uh, leaving the euro, and uh, people were transferring savings from Greece to, to banks in other parts of the eurozone. Essentially, this kind of showed that uh, when you have a common currency, it's very easy and very cheap to transfer money within the same currency union. And uh, if people expect that there is a risk that the common currency may turn out to be unsustainable, unstable, it's very easy to, to hedge against this. And this is exactly what happened. People figured out which of the two parts was likely to have a stronger currency and they wanted to have their savings there. And this is a brilliant uh, thing because you, know, you, you can transfer your savings essentially for free because it's a single banking sector or banking system. It's a single currency union. Uh, but once the separation, currency separation happens and one of them depreciates, you have an instant profit. In the case of Czechoslovakia, the speculations were relatively easy because it was very clear that the Soviet Republic is the weaker part. It was just something like 50%, maybe even less than 50% of the size of the Czech Republic. It had lower productivity, higher unemployment. The political situation was more vulnerable. The country was less prepared for independence than the Czech Republic, which inherited all government institutions and also administration institutions, like, for example, as I mentioned, uh, the central bank. So it was very clear that if there will be some problems, the problems will be larger, much larger on the Slovak side. This capital flight was the central reason for the end of the common currency, even if some individuals profited. It is that particular phenomenon which has been raised by opponents of Scottish independence as a risk for Scotland's economy, though pro-independence campaigners argue the risk is low. Jan Fidemuch expanded more on the economic performance of the Czech Republic and Slovakia after separation and how it affected trade. Essentially, the, the breakup disrupted economic ties between the two countries. Uh, you know, when you have a, a common state, uh, it's much easier to trade uh, with uh, firms, with, with clients uh, from another part of the country uh, because there's no customs border, there's essentially no uh, burden uh, in terms of uh, paperwork, etc. The UK is now experiencing this uh, when it comes to, to Brexit. Uh, you know, the UK can still export uh, to, to uh, the, the rest of Europe, but instead of uh, just driving to Dover and, and uh, taking a ferry, these trucks now have to have uh, suitcases of paper, literally. And so in the case of Czechoslovakia was uh, a bit similar. There was a customs border. Goods could cross the border without paying customs, uh, but th th there was a declaration to be made. There was paperwork had to be filled out. And this leads to two effects in economics uh, referred to as uh, trade destruction and trade diversion. Trade destruction is that firms that are now separated by customs borders stop trading with each other and essentially the trade ceases uh, altogether that the flow of goods ceases trade diversion is that 
these two firms stop trading with each other, but the goods go somewhere else. And so in the, the case of these two countries, uh, they started trading more intensely with uh, European countries. And so the, the, the goods that used to go from Slovakia to the Czech Republic and the other way around started uh, being traded uh, or exported to, to Austria or Germany or other places instead, uh, because Czech Republic as a client or Slovakia for Czech friends was no longer you know, a problem-free, uh, bureaucracy-free uh, destination. And so they could just as well sell it to someone else. But what are the lessons to be learned from the experience of the two countries in this case? What should you think about if there is another independence referendum? In truth, the fact is that the two situations in Czech Republic and Slovakia and in Scotland are significantly different. The situation of Czechoslovakia was a very special situation. So it was, uh, but there are some similarities, but there are much more differences to Scotland and UK than similarities because uh, the starting position is completely different. The strength of the countries is completely different. The awareness of the program is completely different. The preparedness of people, the, the qualification of the experts is uh, highly different. So this is uh, very important to keep in mind. Uh, the second point is the importance of the dynamics. So, so as soon as uh, the political process will start, there will be very important surprises, something which is very difficult to foresee. And uh, this is maybe the most important question, also how to deal with that. So the, the, the example of Czechoslovakia would be kind of, uh, might make people to, to be, be potentially pessimistic because the, the common currency survived uh, for a very brief period of time indeed. On the other hand, uh, when Ireland uh, left uh, the UK, uh, they maintained the pound uh, until 1970s. Uh, and so, yeah, it can really go either way. Uh, it depends uh, largely on the political commitment on both sides. Uh, if the rest of the UK wants to maintain a close economic ties uh, with Scotland, and if Scotland wants to maintain close economic ties uh, with uh, the, the rest of the UK, then uh, they will do everything uh, uh, in their power to, to achieve that. And also, as in as much as this is credible, the markets will behave accordingly. And this, this was the problem uh, in uh, the former Czechoslovakia, that the two sides, the, the political representations made public pronouncements uh, about intending uh, to maintain close economic ties, but this was not credible because uh, they were also making political pronouncements which were not really in line with the two parts maintaining close uh, and friendly relations uh, after the, the breakup. Uh, I mean, it didn't deteriorate the way it did uh, in former Yugoslavia, but uh, they, there were certain tensions, political tensions and otherwise, and this undermined uh, the, the uh, promises of maintaining close economic ties. So, so it really depends what kind of political compromise is maintained between the, the, the two sides and to what extent the two sides credibly demonstrate commitment to, to maintaining this, uh, to maintaining close uh, economic ties after the separation. Now, in case of Scotland, an additional dimension is uh, the European one, uh, because if uh, Scotland were to leave uh, the UK, then uh, at least part of the motivation would be that it would want to rejoin the EU. 
And uh, it's possible uh, that the EU might decide to make this relatively easy for Scotland, uh, if for no other reason than to, to punish the UK, <laughs> the, the rest of the UK. Uh, but then Scotland joining the EU probably would not be consistent with Scotland uh, remaining uh, in a monetary union uh, with the UK. In principle, they could. There's nothing in the rules that would, I believe, uh, make this impossible, but it's uh, less likely that this would turn out to be the, the solution. Uh, and so in that case, Scotland might want to have their own currency in order to switch to the euro at some point in the future after independence. You heard from Jan Fidemuch there that the story of a new independent nation can go either way when it chooses to have a common currency, citing Ireland's own experience. The Irish Free State was established following years of demands for home rule and war in 1921, with the Republic of Ireland formed after the Second World War. In terms of currency, the country embarked on a similar journey to that described by the SNP, deciding to continue with the pound after independence before setting up Ireland's own currency. Ireland's move to keep the pound initially was done amid concerns that rushing into a decision about currency would become a source of national humiliation. Owen McLaughlin, senior lecturer in economics at the University College Cork, explains more. There's definitely pros and cons to everything. Every decision's got trade-offs. But when, when they looked at this, they went for external experts trying to break from being in the United Kingdom. And they, they looked to the dollar. And so they got an American expert from Columbia University, New York. They got Parker Willis to come over and he was chair of the, the kind of banking inquiry um, to look into this thing. And, you know, he, he weighed up all, all the evidence. And so the evidence was, okay, so what, who do you trade with? most of the trade was was with sterling like there's barely any trade with the united states and this is important right so if you, if you don't trade with america then you don't get dollars and then you have to you have to find ways to get dollars to maintain the peg but when you trade and it was almost um you know 100 trade with, with britain right um you're getting sterling with your trade like all the trade is in sterling and so it makes sense then if you're going to have a dominant um currency to peg to well it's the one that you trade with the most and so that made sense. But what he what he did say was, you know, we leave open the option to change in the future if this ever changes, right? So if your balance of trade ever changes, so if it goes towards Europe or if it goes to the United States, well, then this mightn't make sense in the future. But right now, this is what makes sense. So he made he left it open flexibility to change it. And so that was one of the main reasons for keeping it. And then like the Irish banks were heavily involved in the British banking system. They used the London uh, money market, so most Irish deposits just went straight to London. And so, like, you know, in the United Kingdom before, like, you wouldn't wouldn't notice where the money is. But once it becomes independent, all of a sudden, this, these Irish banks have lots of deposits in London. So, you know, when, you, when you're doing your national accounts, this shows up as, you know, Irish banks have deposits in London. Um, so they, they always had these sterling reserves and... They didn't have U.S. reserves, so they wouldn't, wouldn't have made as much sense to do a dollar. In fact, it would have made no sense. So that's why they didn't do a dollar. They, they had thought about it, but it made more sense to do sterling. So like if you were doing a, a Scottish equivalent, you go, well, who's Scotland trading the most with? And it's most likely at the moment it would be England. And so sterling would make most sense. Like it wouldn't make as much sense to go euro if, you know, only 5% of trades with euro like or whatever it is. Like I'm just you know, making up a... Uh, example, but I'd say the majority of trade at the moment would be internal. But what exactly is a sterling peg? What does sterlingization mean in practical terms? So there's a few practical things. Like 
I, it, like on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but it, it turns out this is the really important thing. The recent article we wrote, like myself and the colleague Sean Kenny, kind of think this this is kind of a fundamental. Like, so you, you decide in this policy, you say, okay, we're going to fix our exchange rate, and it limits what you can do because you can't go around spending. You know, the government can't go running huge deficits because this this impacts on capital flows. You know, m- money moving between the countries, and it would impact then on the credibility of maintaining this peg. So it really constrains what a government can do. So if a government would like to be populist, you know, win the support of the, of the people by spending loads of money, but they're kind of constrained in, in how exactly they can go about doing this because they have to maintain this peg and the peg becomes like the fundamental policy choice. We noticed then, so in the 1920s, like, you know, traditional narrative is like the, the government didn't do as much as it could have done. I think there was an article, a few historians were criticizing the, the Irish Free State in the 1920s, like they could have they could have done more, they could have spent more. But they were really constrained. They couldn't do do this. And part of the constraint was making sure that this exchange rate worked. And then the other things, well, there's still all this connection with the British economy. So you have to make sure everything's in line. Like so you know, your interest rates have to be in line. If you don't follow the interest rates, so say if England has a higher interest rate or at that, at that point, the United Kingdom has a higher interest rate than Ireland, well, then the money will will flow out. So you have to make sure that your, your rates matched. And they didn't do this one time in 1955, and there's huge capital outflow. And so uh, this was, they did some purpose. This was trying to kind of experiment to see what well, what happened if we didn't do this. By not following what the Bank of England did, you see this capital outflow from Ireland. And it leads to a kind of serious recession, huge emigration. So this is kind of an example of what can happen. It's the same in the euro. You have to, to have this um, fiscal discipline. I guess that's, this was the problem in Ireland in the early 2000s that they, they didn't have this. They didn't have the, the way that the kind of fiscal policy was, wasn't in sync with the the monetary arrangements. So that that's kind of what it fundamentally means. Yeah. So like on a simple term, what does the peg mean? Well, it means like sterilization means that you have sterling assets to back your exchange rate, but then it also has these wider implications in terms of uh, fiscal policy, what governments can and cannot do. Obviously, they'd like to do more than that. In the 1970s, around 50 years after independence, Ireland begins its slow and steady move away from using the pound. This happens in the context of a growing European common market and, as Owen explains, a diminishing reputation for sterling. So by the 70s, there is more diversification, there's greater trade with the rest of Europe. And sterling has kind of lost its reputation as being this hard currency. Like there's a lot of inflation in Britain in the 60s and the 70s. There is a sense that, you know, Ireland should break away from, from the sterling pay. And joining the European monetary system made more economic sense at that point in time. The other thing that happened, and this is kind of not what was on the radar or what people were thinking or kind of went into counterintuitively. There was worry that, okay, if we break this peg, what happens if the Irish pound rises in value against sterling? So that if we're exporting to Britain, all of a sudden we're less competitive. And the opposite happened. So like the debates before uh, the breaking the, the peg were all about, we'll be at a competitive disadvantage. This is really bad for the Irish economy. But what happened, which is unforeseen, is like North Sea oil, right? So North Sea oil compiled with austerity policies during the Thatcher years. There's like a 50, 55% increase in the value of sterling, which is huge. And all of a sudden that makes sterling uncompetitive. So this is the the kind of unintended consequences. Like they were doing this decision mainly for, you know, political reasons. Like we were joining the EU, we're going to, we're integrating EU, we're staying with this. There, there even was like, you know, offer of um, kind of monetary incentives for Ireland to, to participate. But then it has this unintended benefit where don't get this uh, kind of effect of North Sea oil. 
And and so you see like people writing in the 1980s talking about how a sterling shock has really affected manufacturing in Britain. So sterling becomes uncompetitive. So if you were still pegged to sterling then, it would have put Ireland at a disadvantage. Being in the EMS, uh, the EMS, like you're, you operate within bounds and they, they uh, devalue at certain points. So there's kind of various pressures in the 80s, but there isn't really like a, a real float, I think, until the 90s. So after EMS, so it's it's very small a period of time. When um, the previous governor of the Irish Central Bank, Patrick Onan, was writing, he was saying like it was this experience of the fluctuations and the uncertainty of the free era that led to more support for the euro. And this kind of mirrored the statement that a previous governor of the central bank had made, Moynihan, that he was saying like it was because of the stability of the sterling era peg. The, this is why Irish people liked, or the majority of people like the, the sterling peg because it creates the certainty. So there's these two periods of you know, price stability, the, the uh, sterling peg, the euro, and then there's a small period of floating exchange where uh, I guess people were a bit put out by what, what had happened in that period. But how important is currency choice to the economic performance of a new independent country? The former governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, Patrick Honahan, now a leading academic, argues that, quote, the choice of currency regime is less decisive for economic performance than is often supposed. Ireland's experience may therefore be illustrative for Scotland. So if you look at the different eras, so we have five different uh, exchange rate regimes. There isn't that much of a difference, really, in terms of what's happening. So like the, the exchange rate, is, it is very stable. It's probably like something that's not really given credit in the history of, of the Irish state. So like if you look at any any kind of major textbooks that write, write about the economic history of Ireland, the, the currency is something that doesn't get much attention. That, that's what surprised me, that it was a major issue in the Scottish debate, because it wasn't a major issue or wasn't really discussed. But I think it's one of these things where because it wasn't an issue, it's kind of been understated. So we have like this mundane experience where it's actually quite, you know, nothing really happens. We don't have hyperinflation. We don't have major default episodes like, like that. So like, it seems, uh, you know, it, it's relatively stable. The problem is, like, anything written before, like, the 1990s was always saying, well, how come Ireland's become, so, like, why is Ireland so poor? Uh, why isn't it, you know, why hasn't really been able to grasp the opportunities of independence? And this brings into another thing, unrelated to currency. It's all about, you know, what's the optimal country size? Like, should countries be really big or really small? This was a literature that was out, like, in the early 2000s, like, late 90s, because, of all, you know, the, the Soviet Union was breaking up and there's like, a lot more new countries out there. But one of the arguments was like, you know, obviously being in a big country is a good thing. Like you have these economies of scale, you have bigger markets. If you're a small country, you know, you're going to have increased uh, costs of trading. You don't have the same market size. But one thing that can offset that is a really open international environment, right? So if you have free trade, if you're able to access other markets, other countries, then your size is not an impediment anymore. Uh, It's not an issue. So you can trade with a bigger market. Uh, and I think the other thing Honan said uh, in an earlier piece was like that maybe the sterling peg hindered the economy because we were kind of stuck with Britain, like and Britain is a laggard. Uh, I know, I know, like Britain likes to see itself as like we're, we're leading, but it's it's a real laggard after the Second World War. Like there's a hangover from the Second World War. It takes a long time to get over that, and there's even a hangover after the First World War. So being stuck to like a really slow growing part of the world isn't ideal because then you're kind of you're, you're you're stuck in these kind of patterns 
and they, they last a long time. But once they're in the EU, like the shift from British trade to European trade is, is rapid when it happens. Uh, and then it's the decreased dependence on agricultural exports as well. So once, once, it, once it happens, it, it's quite rapid. The question of who benefits from independence in Scotland is also a central question in the debate. The SNP will argue that independence will provide more of an ability of the government to spend to eradicate poverty, while unionists argue that independence will usher in years of austerity and hurt the poorest hardest. By comparison, Ireland saw similar questions being answered as it experienced the first few years of independence. What we were looking at is the composition of the income from the state. So where's the revenue coming from? And so for the UK as a whole, right, income tax is hugely important. But for Ireland, income tax is a smaller share because it's uh, agricultural. This is a you know, self-declared income. And what the government had to do was to kind of make sure that income tax was at least harmonized with uh, England or if not below. And that was to stop these income tax payers from moving. So there was a there was a shortage of income tax payers in Ireland. You know, you like to soak the rich, you tax them to the to the hilt, but they can leave. And you know, they, they had a lot of connections with England and they you know they would have no problem migrating. So to keep the remaining taxpayers in the country, you have to make sure that the, the income tax rate was below the level it was in the rest of the UK. Uh, and that, that was the policy then. So then you're, you're, you're restricted in terms of what income you can get. And then the rest of the revenue, you know, they're reliant on, on indirect taxation. So that's like VAT or customs. The people that are paying indirect taxation tends to be a higher share of, of income for poorer people, for example. So this exacerbates kind of inequality. When it comes to who actually supported you know, the independence movement, well, if you go back to the 1918 elections, a recent study found that it was, um, you know, huge uh, share of support was from unskilled laborers. They were the people that would be paying these uh, increases in, in indirect taxation, whereas the, the middle class would have been um, kind of Protestant unionists in outlook. They were the ones that would have been the income taxpayers, but they get a tax break. So the who actually benefited from independence were the, the kind of the minority that didn't support it. And then comparability with Scotland then. So Scotland recently got fiscal powers where it could be able to increase its marginal rate of uh, income tax it's slightly targeting this kind of middle middle income or um, slightly higher income group, but th- that is the you know the mobile element of the of the tax base. Like they they, they could easily go to to England in, in the event of like if if the Scottish government decided to increase um, income tax, well, going to Newcastle isn't that far away, or it's not that much of a culture shock to move, move south of the border. So that's where you're kind of constrained. Like you know, government would like to do this, but there's limits to what they can do. So that's kind of you, you see that at the moment. It's where the the, only, the marginal difference is uh, is very low, but it's still noticeable for people that are paying that. What are the lessons then for Scotland? Not everyone who supports the independence is going to be a beneficiary of it. Who will bear the cost of an independent state? So you have to set up new infrastructure, new institutions. There are, there are costs to doing this. There's costs and benefits of independence. So who bears the costs and who benefits? And in the Irish case, the people that benefited were the people that didn't initially support it. The people that bore the costs were the ones that, you know, they, they had voted for Sinn Féin in 1918 before any war broke out. They had supported it. No doubt the question of what currency an independent Scotland would choose to have in the first few years of its existence will be one that dominates the airwaves in any referendum campaign. But the answer to which is best is not as simple as many politicians will want you to think. 
The lesson from other countries is that so much depends on the situation a nation is in at the time it becomes independent, what its relationship with its neighbours is like, and the political pressures at play. One thing is true. Anyone claiming they know exactly what will happen after independence knows about as much as you or I. You can find out more about this series each week in Saturday's edition of The Scotsman and online at scotsman.com. How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices is produced and hosted by me, Connor Matchett, and edited by Kelly Crichton.